Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we're beginning in verse number 9 this morning. Revelation chapter number 1. Uh, beginning in verse 9, talking about the unconquerable king. The unconquerable king. And uh, just want to encourage you to be reading along with us as we walk through the book of Revelation. Uh, this morning we are in Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 20, talking about the unconquerable king. This last week I was watching TV. One of our shows we, we like to watch at the house is AGT, America's Got Talent. And, uh, and this past week we saw something. Uh, there was this contortionist from the Ukraine. And this dude sat down like on the ground with his hands and feet in front of him like this and before he finished his feet were facing directly backwards with his toes wiggling in the air and I was watching this guy like do this and, and in my mind I, 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 I my mind was struggling because I know what my eyes were seeing but my mind wasn't believing what my eyes were seeing and I was looking at that and I was in the midst of studying this book this week and I was like man dude if anybody ever had a difficult time with his mind believing what his eyes were seeing, it would have been John, the revelator, in this text today as he saw Jesus Christ high and lifted up in all of his splendor and in all of his glory just to catch the glimpse of Jesus Christ as he is. I'm certain was incredibly overwhelming. In fact, the scriptures even tell us that he fell down like a dead man in his presence, the unconquerable king. Last week when we began to walk through this book it's an interesting book and uh, the reason and the, the reason for this book being included in scriptures the reason why God gave it is not to satisfy inquiring minds as to uh, who the Antichrist might be or as to uh, uh, the, the, the the whole uh, idea that I want to be on this uh, 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 argument about uh, the end times that's not the purpose the purpose for the book of Revelation was in fact to reveal Jesus Jesus Christ himself to his doulos, to his bondservants, to his slaves. In fact, that's the reference that John uses to talk about the church. He says, here's what a Christian is. A Christian is, in fact, a doulos. A doulos is, an, is a unique slave in that the obligation of him or her has been fulfilled to their master. However, they have chosen. They have chosen that, hey, listen, for the rest of my life, I want to be enslaved to my master. And so they would take this doulos, they would take this person and stick their head down and pull their ear out and slap a big hole marking them for the rest of their days that, hey, their desire is to be a bondservant of their master. And so John in writing is saying, hey, that is exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A follower of Jesus Christ is one of his doulos, is a person who somewhere along the way recognized, I want Jesus Christ not simply as my Savior, but I want him to be Lord of my life. And from this time forward and forevermore, I will follow him and be loyal to my master. And so John is writing here and just simply revealing Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and in all of his glory to his people, and he wants them to know, hey, listen, 
The king is coming. The king is coming. And so that's the introduction from last week. Now, if you're following along in this letter, and you are one of his doulos in one of the seven churches over in the Asian area who were in the midst of incredible persecution, one of the questions perhaps that might be first and foremost in your mind when you hear somebody writing you a letter that, hey, listen, the king is coming. He's on the throne. Uh, no doubt you would say, man, it's been some 60 years since he ascended, and we've never seen him. In fact, some of them have never seen him face to face. And they're in the midst of persecution. They're saying, man, we feel forgotten. We feel abandoned. And you're going to write to us and tell us that the king is unconquerable and that the king is coming? Where do you get off saying that? And John writes as he continues this letter, and he says, hey, I have seen the unconquerable king. I have seen the unconquerable king. And that is where we are this morning. He begins today by saying, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one <clears throat> like the Son of Man. And he was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and he was girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. His voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John, the revelator, begins writing, and he begins with the explanation of the divine encounter. He begins with this explanation in verse number 9 through verse number 11 of a divine encounter that he had with the unconquerable king. And he begins, first of all, by talking about his own person. This is the third time in this short letter of John uh, that he's been writing, and he's saying, hey, listen, I, John, and he talks about his person, a fellow, and he describes himself as a brother and a fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. And he's just simply saying this to his 
people. He's saying, hey, I, John, am one of you. I am a brother. You know what happens oftentimes to us is this. Oftentimes what happens, there's this misconception that people have that you just don't understand what I'm going through, especially when life gets difficult. Sometimes when we're in the midst of difficulties, when we're in the midst of storms, we feel as though nobody really understands. And in fact, I would even take it a step further, and some people uh, would like to believe that, man, when you're talking about John, John was an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, you were a church leader. You, 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 you were in the inner circle. In fact, you were the, the apostle that Jesus loved. You were the beloved apostle. He has somehow put some kind of a, a, a bubble around you to protect you such that you don't experience what the rest of us experience, and that's a misconception oftentimes held. You just don't know what I'm going through, and John is just simply saying, let me identify myself. I am John, and I am one of you. I am one of you. I am in the midst of difficulties just like you are. In fact, he goes on from identifying the person to the place. He says, you know where I am? I am, in fact, on the Isle of Patmos. And you know why I'm here? I'm a 90-year-old man, and the reason why I am here is because I have been faithful to Jesus Christ. And I've been exiled. And the only crime is my faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to his hearers, and it's really, he's writing a message of encouragement because they, are no doubt, are feeling like, man, Jesus has forgotten us, Jesus has abandoned us, and John is simply saying, no, he has not. They're suffering great persecution. When you look at the persecution of the church, the persecution of the church started when the church started. When you talk about even with, between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews, uh, uh, they stoned Stephen, Stephen being the first Christian martyr. And we read about that back in the book of Acts. And so there was persecution that began. AD 64, fast forward a few years, and there wasn't official persecution until that year. And in AD 64, what you had was you had the Roman emperor Nero and Nero, if you remember, was a madman. He was a crazy dude, and he lit the city on fire, and he needed a scapegoat. And so he said, it's those Christian people. And so in and around the city of Rome, official Roman persecution began against the church of Jesus Christ. But it stayed pretty much in and around the city of Rome, where official persecution was taking place. But then there was a new emperor that came to town, that came to the throne, and his name was Emperor Domitian. And Domitian was really crazy, and he was chasing the church all over the place, all over into this place of modern-day Turkey, which would be these Asian churches that are listed here, the seven churches, and these believers were really on the run for their life. They were enduring severe, severe persecution, and John's just simply saying, hey, listen, I'm also one of you. I'm enduring great persecution, just like you are. And sometimes if we're not careful, what happens is in the midst of our difficult days, no matter what your difficult day might be, whether it be persecution, whether it be just simply heartache, whether it be health issues, no matter what your dark day is, sometimes if we're not careful, we can feel as though God has forgotten us. Have you ever had that feeling, the feeling that maybe God has forgotten about me? He's left me here. I remember when our boys were little, 
And one of them got sick. I remember one of them got sick, and he wasn't feeling well, and Bonnie went in to comfort him and to pray over him and pray for him and assure him that, hey, listen, God knows. And so she was praying, and she said, God, would you just touch him and let him know that you are right here beside him? And our son was laying in that bed, and he just wasn't feeling well. And all of a sudden, he said, Man, I don't feel him. I don't feel him. I don't feel him. Whoa. <laughs> Sometimes we don't feel his presence. But aren't you thankful this morning? Hey, my faith is not built on feelings. It's built on truth. My faith is not built on feelings. It's built on facts from God's word. And God says in his word, I'll never leave you and I will never forsake you. In this introduction, John is continuing and he says, let me tell you a little bit about my practice. Here's what's happening in my life. Verse number 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. He's just simply saying, hey, when, 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 when days were difficult, in fact, I'm in the midst of difficulty, I'm still gathering for worship. When you talk about the Lord's day, some people would say, is he talking about the day of the Lord or the Lord's day? Because both are recorded in the book of Revelation. They're two different things. The Lord's day, ever since the book of Acts, the Lord's day would be Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's when the church began gathering. All the way back when the church was created, they gathered on Sunday for worship. That's why we continue to gather on Sunday for worship. I know that some people say, well, you don't have to go to church on Sunday to worship. I would say, absolutely not. You can worship any and every day of the week. However, most people that do not set aside Sunday as their day of worship don't take time any other day of the week. Y'all okay? John says, man, I was, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I, I was just overwhelmed. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And sometimes we're singing, I hear loud voices around me. But this was a voice like nothing that's ever happened. And, and, and I would encourage you, let me, just, let me just linger here for just a second. Because again, sometimes, especially, especially when life seems to be unraveling for us, sometimes what we do is we say, hey, I need to just stay home. I just need, I, I need to fix things. I need to take care of myself. And, and you jump ship. You get out of the boat. You go home and stay home and don't gather with the saints of God. But I'm just telling you that it's in those moments that we really need to be here. We always need to be here. But I'm telling you, he was gathering and he heard the voice <clears throat> of God talking to him. And God said this. He said, here's the plan. Here's the plan, John. Write in a book, verse number 11, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so he just says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write to each one of these different churches. These are seven, by the way, these are seven literal churches. There's nothing fancy about the order in which John is writing. In fact, if you looked on a map, you would find that if you were to leave the Isle of Patmos and go and travel inland, what you would do is you would actually make a loop and you would start and end exactly in the order that he's writing here. So he's just simply saying, hey, to the churches over there that are in the midst of struggling, that, that are in the midst of persecution, I want you to write these things because I want to re reveal myself to my people. I want them to know that I am in control. I want to give them some encouragement. <clears throat> we have an unconquerable king who is 
on the throne. Aren't you thankful? I mean, let me just linger here just for a minute more. We're going to be in verse number 11 here, and he talks about this description of the unconquerable king. He gives this description of the unconquerable king. But it's so important that we understand, again, the setting that, that, listen, John is writing this book of Revelation so that he might encourage the hearts of the saints who are in a world that seems to be unraveling, in a world that seems to be forgotten by God Almighty. Would you not say that many people today are in this world and they're looking around and saying, where in the world is God? And I'm telling you, he's on the throne. <laughs> he's on the throne. And he writes, and he says, let me tell you where God is. And he gives a description of the king beginning in verse number 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, uh, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And we're going to go on from there. John is writing, and he's revealing Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and in all of his glory. And so you will find the word like several times over. In fact, seven times over, you're going to find the word like. Like, like fire, like bronze, like. And you find this word like, like snow. <clears throat> and what he's saying is this. He's, he's simply trying to describe the indescribable. That's what he's doing. He's trying to describe the indescribable. And so what we have in Scripture oftentimes, when they're trying to describe the indescribable, to describe deity to humanity, they use language called anthropomorphic language. And all that simply means is we're going to use human language to describe deity, and it really is difficult. In fact, this morning I would say even if we understand all of these verses of Scripture, one day we will see him as he is and we'll say, wow. <laughs> I mean, I read it. But look at him. I mean, imagine if somebody tried to describe the Grand Canyon to you. Oh, uh, you'd have a picture in your head. But if you saw it, you would say, oh, that's not what the picture looked like. And that's what we have in this scripture. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands, seven golden lampstands. In other words, he's saying, hey, this was the church, and Jesus Christ was in the midst of his church. He identifies it as the church down in verse number 20. So when you're reading through the book of Revelation, what we have oftentimes is descriptions that are actually explained. You just got to know where the explanation is found. And he already tells us, he says, this seven golden lampstands is the church. And he uses lampstands simply because the Bible says in Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 14 that you are a, a, a light, a city that is set on a hill. And, and he's talking to individuals, but he's also talking to the church. We are called to be the light of the world, the light that dispels darkness. That's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be alive. In fact, when Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 5, he goes on to say, You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone take a lamp and put it on a table and cover it up. And I think about where the church is today, and why is this world in such darkness? Because the church is failing to light like it's supposed to. But he's saying, Hey, I saw the church. And it says, in the midst of the church, in the midst of the church, I saw one like the Son of Man. 
like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a, is a term that's used in the New Testament. In fact, it was used by Jesus Christ himself some 83 different times, referring to his own humanity. So what it is, it is a term, it is a title that is used to describe the humanity of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, hey, I saw one like the Son of Man. In other words, it's been some 60 years since John has seen Jesus Christ, and this time he's seeing him and catching a glimpse of him in all of his splendor and in all of his glory. And he said, man, I saw one like Jesus standing in the middle of the church. Why would he be writing that to the church? To encourage them, to let them know, hey, listen, he has not forgotten about you. In fact, where you are, he is there. He's in the midst. He is here. And when you look around and you see a world that's unraveling, and when you look around at the church and you say, man, what's happening? Where's Christ? He's here. He's here. Matthew Chapter number 18, the Bible says it like this. In Matthew 18, in verse number 20, the Bible tells us, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Oh, you might not feel it, but our faith is not about feelings. It's about facts, and he's told us, I am with you. I'm with you. I haven't forgotten about you. I know intimately who you are. And what your needs are. Verse number 13, he's describing him. He says, man, he, he had girded across his chest a golden sash. He had a robe that reached down to his feet. And so he's talking about what he's wearing. And it's interesting because when you look back at the Old Testament, the same exact words are used in the Septuagint to describe the robes of the priests, the sashes that the priests would wear, the high priest, the Septuagint being the Greek version of the Old Testament. And if you look back and you do a word study, you'll find that, man, he's saying, hey, when I saw Jesus Christ, I saw him robed and wearing a sash that was just like a high priest. And if you read through the book of Hebrews, do you know what you find in the book of Hebrews? That Jesus Christ is our high priest. That's exactly who he is. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, 23 and following, the Bible says it like this, and this is just one of many references to who Jesus is today for me and for you. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says in verse 23, the former priests on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what John is writing? He says, man, I saw him. And you know what I saw? I saw one like the Son of Man. I saw Jesus in the midst of the church. And you know what he was doing for you? He was interceding on your behalf. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's ministering to you. Even when you don't feel him, even when you don't know he's there, he's there. That's what John is saying to the church. What great encouragement is that? that I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who's interceding for me even today. He knows my needs better than I know my needs. And he's interceding for me, and he's doing the same for you. I'm grateful for Jesus Christ. He says, man, he had hair that was like, like, like wool, like snow. And it's just a picture, again, of his holiness. Man, he is holy. There's none. There's never been any like Jesus. He was perfect, and he was sinless. He was the spotless lamb. 
of God. Hebrews chapter number 4, over in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse number 15, the Bible says it like this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He is pure and he is holy. And there's never been another one like our Jesus. And he says, man, he had eyes. Verse number 14, and his eyes were, were like fire. We're like fire. In other words, man, when you're talking about fire, fire will penetrate and will pierce. And he says, man, his eyes, there's nothing hidden from his sight. There's nothing hidden from his sight. In fact, if you were to talk about his eyes today, I was thinking about these verses of Scripture, and I thought, man, he got eyes like Superman, x-ray vision. You can see. But Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse number 13, the Bible says it like this, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What's he saying? Jesus sees and Jesus knows. And when you think about the eyes of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and he's going to continue this letter to the church's we're going to start next week on those letters. But, he, but, he, but he's saying, hey, he, he sees, he knows. He knows your hurt, he knows your heartache, he knows everything about you. Why? Because he sees. And when you think about his eyes piercing and seeing, hey, so many times what happens to people, you know, you know what happens to people? We try to guard ourselves. We don't like to make ourselves vulnerable. And so what we do is we build these invisible walls. Why? Because we don't want people really to see us for who we really are. I mean, I got everything okay. I don't have any struggles. When the fact of the matter is, we do have struggles. We do have needs. And although we may try to hide those from one another, we may try to hide those from our children, from our parents, from our spouses, from our friends, from our church family. We'll never, ever be able to hide those things from his eyes. He sees. And so when you think about the eyes of God seeing and seeing everything, there's nothing hidden from his eyes. I think it does a couple of things for us. I think one thing it does for us is brings us under great conviction, or it ought to, that he knows. So why hide? In fact, when you're talking about his eyes being convicting eyes, there's a, in Luke 22, in Luke chapter 22, uh, when you're talking about the Gospels recording different stories, one of the stories from the Gospels that we read about is the story of Peter. You remember the story of Peter? Peter the disciple who, man, he experienced so many things in his walk with God, but yet Peter the disciple also was one who denied Jesus Christ. Remember his denial of Jesus Christ? I don't know him three times over. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And and the rooster crowed. You know what the Bible says in Luke chapter 22, verse number 61? It says, I don't know him. And Jesus looked at him. And in that moment, Peter remembered that Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Peter. And he got under deep conviction. Sometimes the eyes of Jesus bring great conviction. But you know, other times the eyes of Jesus bring great comfort. And I believe that when John was writing this letter to his specific recipients of this letter, 
it was written in such a way such that they might understand, hey, listen, there's an old song that says it like this. It takes the gospel of Matthew and it, and it writes a song, but his eyes on the sparrow. When Jesus was talking, he said, hey, the birds of the air, dime a dozen that most people look at and they wouldn't give two cents for them. I see them. I see when one of them fall from heaven. But I also got my eye on you. His eyes on a sparrow, and I know he's watching me. Comforting to know that my unconquerable king sees and knows everything. His eyes are like fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, which is simply a symbol of authority. Jesus Christ, the first time he came, he came to save. The first time he came, he came in all humility. The next time when he comes, he's not coming in his humility. He's coming as conquering king the next time. We're living life today in the days of grace, and if you're not saved, this is the day of salvation. This is the day to cry out on the Lord Jesus Christ and experience his saving grace, because when he comes again, when he comes again, he's coming as conquering king, and he's going to deal with sin. He's coming to condemn sin. In fact, the Bible says in John chapter number 5, in John chapter 5 and verse number 22, the Bible says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. It's interesting when you think of Jesus Christ because he was the spotless Lamb of God, but yet he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's who he is. He's coming again one day. He says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. And when you think about rushing waters, man, it, it, there's just so many thoughts that come to mind Saying, hey, his word is powerful. I mean, it's powerful. I mean, think about the disciples, what they heard when they heard his voice say, hey, wind, stop blowing. Hey, seas, quit your waving. And they stopped. They said, man, his word is, is powerful. But his word is also soothing. Zacchaeus, come down and I want to spend time with you. You may feel rejected by the world, but I want time with you, Zacchaeus. His word is like rushing waters. Rushing waters sometimes, man, they sound so powerful, but other times they're so soothing. But who can stand against his word? Nothing, no one. He spoke everything into existence. He says he, he held the seven stars in his right hand. And when you're talking about the seven stars, we're not talking about the seven angels. Seven angels is another word for messengers. Some people would say, well, this is, these are angelic beings. Well, the problem with being angelic beings, there's a couple of problems. Number one, in the New Testament, you will never find angelic beings being in leadership and positions of authority in the life of churches. You will never find angels coming to deliver messages. You find messengers, but not angelic beings. Number two, whenever you have this letter being written to the angels of the churches and he's calling them to repent, there's never been an angel before that's needed to repent. But you know who has? Messengers called pastors. He says, man, I got them in my right hand. 
I'm in control of these churches. Out of his mouth, he had a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun. Again, back to Hebrews chapter number 4, and verses number 12 and 13, Hebrews 4. For the word of the Lord, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his eye, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He's just saying, hey, Jesus Christ, I have seen him unveiled in all of his splendor and in all of his glory. His face was like the sun. In fact, the new Jerusalem that we read about, we're going to get there eventually. There was no sunshine in the sky, but it was the radiance of Jesus Christ, the sun, that fills the place. What's this telling me and telling you? If we could only catch a glimpse of Jesus for who he is, it would change our approach to him. You know, we, we like to keep him, we like to keep him in the cradle because he's not threatening there. We like to see him on the cross and all of his humanity because he's not intimidating there. But he was veiled the first time. He's no longer veiled. So when you think of Jesus Christ, although he is my friend, can I tell you something about Jesus Christ? He's not my homeboy. He, he's not to be treated <clears throat> loosely. He's to be revered. Jesus, the Bible says in 17, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, and he began to speak. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, who at the Lord's Supper laid his head on his bosom, was standing in his presence, and he was struck with fear. We live in a world today, it's so crazy, <clears throat> where, man, some, somebody will write a book about their vision of Jesus Christ and say, there he is, man, sure enough, he's alive. <laughs> and they give a description of Jesus and all of his humanity, but the fact of the matter is the Bible says he's no longer veiled that way. He's not veiled that way. In fact, you know what's interesting about Jesus Christ? Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament do we even see a description of him but we got pictures everywhere. I thought my mamma knew. <laughs> Go to dinner at mamma's house. I saw Jesus on the wall. <laughs> Says he starts talking the declaration of the king. <clears throat> Put his hand on him, assuring him, comforting him, just a touch. And he says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And he gives his testimony, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. He's saying, hey, John, I am God. I'm the unconquerable king, and I hold the keys to death. 
I hold the keys to hell. I am in control forevermore, forevermore. And in verse number 19, he says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place. And in verse number 19, in that one verse, we see the whole outline of the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen. This is exactly what he's doing. He's writing those things which he, we, he has seen. And the things which are would be the letters to the churches in the next two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, and the things which will be, that is future, that is prophecy, that begins in chapter 4 until the end of the book. He's saying, here's the outline, John, you start writing. And so with that, John has been writing, and aren't you grateful to know that we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Savior is unconquerable, he's alive forevermore, and he's coming again one of these days. Are you ready to see him? Are you ready? Hey, I'm just asking. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm inviting you today. I'm not talking about religion, going to church. I'm talking about a relationship with the King of Kings. Time in your life when you recognize that I have sinned and fallen short and I have a problem. My problem is myself. My problem is my sin. And there's nothing you can do to fix that problem. But Jesus came. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. And so he shed his blood so that my sins could be dealt with. And he dealt with them as my substitute on the cross. He paid the price. The wages of sin is death. He paid the wages for my sin that I owe because of myself. He took my place. Why? Because he loves me and desires intimacy with me. And he did it for you. Ever been a time in your life when you said, man, I need him. I want him to be my Savior and my Lord. If not, I'm inviting you today. Call on his name. Call on his name while you can. Call on his name.